This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. If you want to do what I did and unlock the underworld of mobsters and spies, not the glamorized, cartoonish, disconnected lore of each, which have dominated American storytelling for the past hundred years, but the real realm of darkness, the realm where mobsters and spies intersect, the one that's connected to our realm in the light, lurking beneath us, with the threat to one day rise and flood our world with their blood-soaked money, a second economy built off the capitalization of human misery. If you want to unlock that world, you just have to start with two dead bodies. Body number one. When KGB asset FC Egron stepped out his front door on May 4th, 1985, he already had three notable scars from his time in the United States. Two on his face and neck from being shot at close range a year earlier outside this very apartment. And one on his stomach. A bullet he took in 1980 while out and about on Coney Island. Agron emigrated from the Soviet Union in 1975, landing in Brighton Beach via the Jackson-Vanik Amendment and gained control over the Voivy Zakonia, a.k.a. the Russian Vor, who had washed ashore with him. By the time he took that first bullet in the gut, Agron was already the godfather of the Russian Mafia. By the time he took the next two, in the face and neck, he was raking in a billion dollars annually from just one of his schemes, a gas scam he ran with the Genovese crime family. This, on top of his decade-long extortion rackets, made FC's five-foot-four-inch frame a prime target for assassination. From the crime bosses he wasn't in business with, to his own underbosses, who, with their ties to the Kremlin and even bigger gangsters in the motherland, were pointing a thousand knives at his back. On that fresh spring morning in 1985, at the height of the Cold War, the little dawn of Brighton Beach had every reason to stay inside. But the lure of a famed Turkish bathhouse was calling. Like his American predecessor, Meyer Lansky, a lucrative day of business could be done in that bathhouse. And, being a Saturday, a delightful night out was ahead with his cabaret girlfriend. His driver and bodyguard was already waiting for him in a car outside. So Agron got dressed, stepped out of his ornate apartment, hit the elevator button, and someone else slipped from the shadows. A professional assassin pressed a gun to F.C. Agron's right temple and pumped two bullets into his brain. Body number two. The hit squad was dressed in white trench coats and Russian hats. Eleven. There was eleven of us. That voice is Sammy the Bull Gravano, 
a former underboss of the Gambino crime family, one of the five families of La Cosa Nostra. The audio is from Diane Sawyer's on-camera interview with Sammy for her show, Primetime. She landed the interview after Bob Mueller had flipped Gravano and used him as the key witness to convict fellow Gambino, John Gotti. Gotti's crime was ordering a mob hit, an assassination that was masterminded by Sammy Gravano. The hit was later described by author Howard Blum as a, quote, military operation. In her primetime special on Sammy, Diane Sawyer explains a bit of the planning that Sammy put into the hit. It was extensive. He says it took seven months of careful planning. Sammy Gravano's team was ready and in position outside Sparks, a steakhouse in Midtown Manhattan. He and John Gotti were waiting from a parked car across the street. At 5.20 p.m., a Lincoln limousine pulled up to the restaurant entrance. They were told, kill them. And if, you, if it means you have to die there, then die there with them. Die there in a gun battle with the cops. Do not back off of this hit. Like F.C. Agron's driver, the limo's driver, Tommy Bellotti, was also the bodyguard for the man inside, Big Paul Castellano, head of the Gambino crime family, Gotti and Sammy's boss, the only Cosa Nostra boss who, at this point in history, wasn't in bed with the Russians. The light changed. I was on the walkie-talkie. I says, everybody get ready. They pulled in front of Sparks. They parked the car. As soon as Paul opened up the door, I saw them white jackets all surrounding the car. They were shooting Paul. Tommy was actually watching Paul being shot, thinking which direction that he would run, probably. But part of the head team was across the street, and they came across and shot him in the head a bunch of times. And uh, we pulled next to them. I put the window down slightly. I told John, he's gone. On December 15th, 1985, seven months after F.C. Agron was killed on his way to Meyer Lansky's old bathhouse, Paul Castellano died on an empty stomach. Okay, so who am I, and what are we doing here, talking dead mob bosses and teasing a secret world to unpack? Well, I'm a screenwriter. I do earn a living with it. I'm also a mom, wife, daughter, sister, aunt, all the roles. And for the past five years, I've been singularly driven to expose the crime syndicates behind our now former president, not for political reasons, but because I knew something about him. I knew he was a front for mobsters, a money launderer for global criminals. Oddly, this wasn't secret knowledge. Prior to 2016, the Trump family ties to organized crime had been extensively covered by journalists, like the late Wayne Barrett. But, for some reason, this well-documented history, which was in the archives of every major news organization, couldn't land in the press while they were covering the campaigns. Where it did, voters couldn't absorb it. There was something about the story of a U.S. presidential candidate being a career money launderer for the mafia that just wouldn't stick. Maybe that was because of the storytellers before me? From book to screen, they had sold audiences, the same people who vote, 
on a cartoonish version of the underworld. Sure, the material is fun, but most of it is horseshit. And, as I discovered, our mobster mythologies were the main obstacle that stopped people from getting it with respect to what we were really up against. If we weren't going to talk about this man's decades-long history with organized crime, how could we possibly assess the threat he posed if he ended up in the White House? Which, of course, he did. When that happened, I took to that mobster's territory. Twitter. Assume the pseudonym Lincoln's Bible, the book on which he placed his hand and took the oath of office, and exposed this history. After only a few months, the narrative started breaking through. People were getting it. Maybe because I'm a screenwriter who builds worlds out of characters. Maybe. But the more information I put out, the more information I had to take in. I amassed a unique library of mob books and court documents and every and anything I could get my hands on that helps expose crime syndicates. And as I got deeper into the characters and connections of this world, I found spies everywhere. Intelligence operations, arms deals, the movement of mass sums of money through corrupt banks to destabilize entire nation states. I found a history that hasn't been told. So here's what we're doing. We're going to tell it. We'll reconstruct our understanding of the underworld, the world beneath us, using characters and facts. And because the intersection of mobsters and spies is this weird, coded realm of secrecy, much of its history has to be pieced together with details that would otherwise go unnoticed, like the details around the assassinations of FCA Gron and Big Paul Castellano. First, let's talk about those Russian hats, the ones that Sammy Gravano shoved onto the heads of his hitmen. They tell a broader story, one that is critical to understand as we go on this journey, dissecting what was happening in the underworld at the time of those two assassinations. Sammy Gravano said he used the Russian hats as a ruse to throw off investigators. Well, why did he think that might work? Because, at the time in New York, the Russian mafia, the syndicate that F.C. Agron built, was actually big and bold enough to assassinate Paul Castellano the most powerful crime boss in the world, on his own turf, in front of his favorite restaurant. You see, by 1985, the Kremlin's mobsters had established themselves in Big Paul's city by partnering with the other Cosa Nostra crime families, the Lucchese, Colombo, Bonanno, and the biggest family, the Genovese. Remember that other detail? That Agron was raking in a billion dollars a year from a gas scam with the Genovese? Well, that means the Genovese were raking in this level of money too and absolutely taking the bigger cut. The Russians had introduced our American gangsters to a simple racket that produced returns above and beyond the biggest construction gigs in Manhattan. 
Still, for the Genovese, letting those Soviets be in business with them was considered a favor. So the U.S. kingpins got Russian mafia muscle as a form of tribute. This likely began when F.C. Agron first landed in the States, smack in the heart of Genovese territory. Agron set up shop in Brighton Beach, running his operation from an office at the El Carib Club, a swanky catering hall and summer swim club owned by Michael Cohen's family. Yes, that Michael Cohen, who went from slinging poolside chicken fingers at El Carib to managing the legalities of Donald Trump's criminal enterprise. We'll get into all of this in due time. For now, the thing to grasp about those Russian hats is that for Samri Gravano, and likely every other Cosa Nostra underboss, framing the Russians for Big Paul's hit could work. In their world, the size, scope, and brazenness of the Russian vor made it plausible. Gravano's ruse with the hats was a tacit acknowledgement that Cosa Nostra had a rival, a Frankenstein of their own making. One that, we now know, was rolling them up from within. What Gravano and the rest of us would later discover is that law enforcement at the time was lagging in this knowledge. In 1985, they had no idea how deeply embedded the Russian mafia was within Cosa Nostra's families, or how large they had grown or that there was an intelligence agency back at the Kremlin that was behind them. The Russian war was a syndicate perfectly capable of assassinating two bosses in one year, seven months apart. That is a detail that grabs me hardest. The time period between those two hits. That Agron and Castellano were both assassinated in the same year had long fascinated me. But look at the time frame between their deaths. It's the exact same time period, the days, weeks, and months, that Sammy Gravano spent planning the Castellano hit. Seven months from May to December, 1985. When I first found this detail, it bothered me immensely. It crawled from my brain and nestled under my skin, an irritating, unshakable bug until I could make it make sense. The questions mounted. In the criminal underworld, where both Agron and Castellano ruled, how close were these two bosses to one another? Was there something specific connecting them or their assassins? Does the fact that Big Paul didn't want his family, the Gambinos, in business with the Russians have anything to do with why he was hit? What does it mean that Agron was an asset of a foreign intelligence agency? And did the KGB send him to infiltrate the U.S. via our crime families? If so, why? What was the goal? And finally, I asked myself, how far back in time do I have to go to make this all make sense? Sometimes doing research like this, you never find an answer. And sometimes you find a mirror.
Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. What companies would you want to work for? Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the prestigious Just Capital 2024 seal. Bank of America is ranked number one in the banking industry and number one for their ongoing commitment to workers, offering best-in-class benefits, including a minimum wage of $25 an hour by 2025. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. Meyer Lansky's Bathhouse. That's where F.C. Agron was heading. It's another random detail that speaks to the connective tissue in a broader world. To really understand it, we have to go all the way back to the men who came before Big Paul Castellano, to the moment when crime got organized. In 1911, tiny Mayor Sukalyansky arrived in the United States with his parents and two siblings. He was nine or ten years old. Born in Grodno, Russia, once part of Poland, Mayer was among tens of thousands of Russian Jews fleeing persecution for the promise of America. The paperwork on his arrival lists his birthday as July 4, 1902. Since his parents couldn't remember the exact date that Mayer was born, they picked the day of independence for their oldest son. It fit him. Immediately, the strong-minded boy renamed himself. In the ghettos of Lower Manhattan, Mayer Sukalyansky became known as Meyer Lansky. Meyer Lansky was first known for being tiny and being smart. He was great at school, a brilliant boy, frankly. He loved machines, systems, things with an inherent order that could be mastered. He quickly gained status among his peers, and not just for his brains. Meyer was a fighter. One could argue he had no choice. The Irish gangs were particularly brutal to their new Jewish neighbors. There's a story of Meyer walking home with a pot of colant, a kind of stew, and some Irish kids approached him, their leader flashing a knife, harassing him, laughing and taunting the diminutive boy. Without any warning, Meyer raised the pot above his head and brought it down on the kid with the knife, cracking his face wide open, leaving that boy on the ground in a pool of his own blood. Meyer fought off the rest of the gang, kicking and biting like a wild animal, taking their brutal blows until the police arrived. The story became legend in the neighborhood. The little guy named Meyer was not to be fucked with. Although he only grew to five feet, four inches tall, from that moment on, Meyer was a giant. Now, while that story is well known, the story of how Meyer first met the man with whom he'd build an empire is up for debate. Depending on the era of the biographer 
and how friendly they were with Meyer Lansky, you're going to get differing stories. I'm going with Hank Messick's version, because Meyer didn't like him. Hank never went for the glamour of these criminal legends. He went for the truth. Plus, Hank found a police record to substantiate his version of that story. On October 24, 1918, Meyer walked home from his job at a tool and die maker. Skilled with his hands, he always carried his toolbox and his desire to rise above a job where he labored with his hands instead of his mind. He was only 16, but he was restless. The promise of America hadn't quite materialized for Meyer. On his walk through the Lower East Side, he hears a woman scream from inside a deserted house. Then, a man yells in Italian. Then, more screams. As Hank put it, perhaps he was bored, perhaps just curious. Whatever the motivation, Meyer entered that house, walking onto a scene that would alter his life and all of ours forever. The first thing he sees is a young teenage boy lying on the floor, pants at his ankles, scared out of his mind. A woman next to him, the source of the screams, is now laughing. I didn't mean anything. He was so cute, she says. There's a third person in the room, the young woman's husband and the man she's speaking to, 21-year-old Salvatore Lucagna, later to be known as Lucky Luciano. Lucky kicks his wife. The boy pulls up his pants and finds a couch. And what does Lansky do? He opens his toolbox, grabs a wrench, and charges Luciano. Like the street fight with the Irish, the cops arrive. They send the wife to the hospital, the teenage boy home, and arrest Lansky and Luciano. Because he was holding his wrench, Meyer is the one charged with assault. Three weeks later, at Meyer's hearing, the teenage boy, Ben, shows up to testify on Meyer's behalf telling the story of how Meyer saved him from a violent confrontation when his pants were down. A thoroughly amused judge fines Meyer $2 and says something that will live on in infamy. You boys have bugs in your heads. Go and sin no more. Meyer and Ben were then known in the neighborhood as the two bugs. The nickname didn't last long with Meyer, but it stuck hard to the other boy, Benjamin Siegel. Bugsy Siegel was born. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening wherever you listen. What of Luciano? Well, lots have been happening with the Italians around him. 
they had just come out of a brutal war to determine who would control the streets. The generation before Lucky and Meyer still ruled the neighborhood economy, especially when it came to stocking stores with imports from the homeland and extorting the community at large. Because of their old-world style and dress, these primarily Sicilians were called the Mustache Peets. And they had a grip. But it was all very local. And being set in the ways of the old world, they couldn't see what the younger generation among them did, like Lucky Luciano. At 23, Lucky was anxious for his piece of the promised land. Prohibition had just begun in the U.S. But it wasn't in Canada or overseas. Lucky knew there was an opportunity to be had, one he couldn't quite crack. He was smart enough to know that he wasn't smart enough to realize his vision. Lucky needed a brain. Two years after that fateful first encounter, he went looking for Meyer Lansky. Now Lansky had been supplementing his meager salary at the tool and die shop by running a floating crap game. It was small, but caught the eye of Joe Masseria, the neighborhood's biggest mustache Pete. And that boss wanted his cut. Instead of paying Masseria's thug, Meyer brought his own muscle, one of the Jewish boxers who helped Meyer collect. A fight ensued, as it always does, and Meyer was arrested once again, as he always was. He posted his own bail this time, and waiting for him outside the courthouse was Lucky Luciano. Lucky and Meyer bury the past, have a sit-down, and plot how to take over business from the mustache peats. Luciano's plan was just to start killing men like Masseria and start importing booze using their ships and let Meyer figure out how and where to sell it. But Meyer, the guy who could build and fix any machine with his hands, saw the real opportunity, the vision, the one that reached beyond the local port the one that would allow them to serve a drink to every thirsty American who wanted it. Meyer dropped a game changer. The automobile. They would use it. Here was Meyer's plan, and it was brilliant. Luciano convinced the old Sicilians to let his crew use the new automobiles to drive liquor from the port to key destinations where Familia were embedded like New England and Chicago. He convinced the Mustache Peets to let his crew take over distribution and eventually the ports. They were head of operations. And while they may still have been given the old-timers a cut, the bootlegging empire belonged to Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano. To help secure new territories, Meyer turned to the Jewish businessman who taught him about gambling. Arnold Rothstein. He wrangled Sam Bronfman from Canada as a key liquor supplier. Everything for Meyer was about expansion. Carpet rooms, where they did the local crap games, would eventually turn into casinos. They dominated the Midwest, Florida, the Caribbean, Cuba, 
they partnered with a New Orleans syndicate to bring liquor up into those southern ports. This shit got organized. And then, as Meyer predicted, the folks from point to point trusted Luciano over the old Sicilians. When the young entrepreneurs had a lock on it all, the real war began. Luciano took out the old capos, eventually executing the last of them, Joe Masseria himself. With friends like Bugsy at their side, those two young entrepreneurs accomplished the promise that had yet to be named. Perhaps they're even the ones who named it. They finally had the American dream. There's more to dissect in that brushstroke of underworld history, but we can't get to it without telling the story of what was happening in the realm of the light. There was a singular person who stood in the way of those two gangsters. And it was a woman. And she created a science from the study of out-of-place details, the kind that irritate the mind until you can crack the mystery behind what they're trying to tell you. I first learned about Elizabeth Friedman from my uncle, who's a three-decade intelligence veteran of the National Security Agency, often just called the NSA. For those who don't know, the NSA is the world's largest and most advanced intelligence agency. When it comes to assessing the threats to this nation, it is the very large tip of the spear. And within the secure walls of that big daunting agency, Elizabeth Friedman is rightfully known as its founder. This, of course, happened by accident. And it happened specifically because of our bootleggers. Elizabeth was the first real code breaker. We'll dive into her origin story in the next episode and get into all the correct terminology for the science that is signal intelligence. What you need to know about her now is that she was the one who hunted Meyer Lansky. In between her historic work for each of the two world wars, Elizabeth was hired by the IRS to help the Coast Guard crack the codes of rum runners, the ships, carrying all of Meyer's booze. To do this work, Elizabeth needed to assemble an intelligence unit within the government that worked across several of its existing units. Six separate law enforcement agencies, including the Secret Service, IRS Treasury, and the Coast Guard. It was the first official intelligence unit that existed in and of itself. And eventually, it grew into the greatest intelligence agency the world has ever known, the NSA. To put it neatly, when the mobsters got organized, so did the spies. As soon as Elizabeth Friedman entered Meyer Lansky's world to hunt down his associates and break up his empire, the underworld, the world beneath us, was fully formed. The World Beneath is a production of Imperative Entertainment, created and written by me, LB. Our executive producer is Jason Hoke. Sound engineering is by Shane Freeman. Editing by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. 
The World Beneath is a five-season series, with each season consisting of 10 narrative episodes and 10 sit-down interviews. You are listening to Season 1, Treasure. Narrative episodes publish Monday morning and are sit-down episodes on Thursdays, wherever you find your shows. Or binge the entire season now on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at the handle at Lincoln's Bible. The Ed Milet Show showcases the greatest peak performers sharing their journey, knowledge, and thought leadership. This is one of the all-time best pieces of advice ever given on the show. Actor Rain Wilson. The number one thing that psychologists point to with young people of why they are struggling so much in this mental health epidemic is they don't have resilience. So how do you build resilience if you don't understand suffering itself? The Ed Milet Show is available on YouTube or wherever you listen. 